This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, Hardwood Knox listeners. We're pumped to be able to share an exclusive trailer with you after today's show. From Blue Wire Studios comes Golden Goal, stories of soccer legends. Each Monday, two new episodes will take a look into some of soccer's biggest stars and the moments that define their careers. All narrated by Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's Always Cheating podcast. From Haaland, Zalton, Messi, Rapino, and many more, each episode will focus on the historical plays and personalities that make the sport great. So stay tuned after this episode and check out Golden Goal, stories of soccer legends, wherever you get your podcasts. What it do, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with Adam Frommel and my puppy Wade, who's sitting on my lap as we do this and being highly annoying. Still love him, though. We are continuing on with our decade ranking series. We're up to the top 10 players of the past decade for the Milwaukee Bucks. Thank you to everyone who participated in the the ranking sheet that NBA Math threw out there. Follow NBA Math on Twitter at NBA underscore math, and you can help out with all future ranking episodes. We'll have the Minnesota Timberwolves next. Before we begin, just our usual housekeeping notes. Please, 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 please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're consuming your podcasts. Even if you're not consuming that po- these podcasts on Apple, we ask that you go in there and throw us a five-star rating anyway. Write a review. It really helps us out as well as lets us keep track of any constructive criticism, suggestions. Like I said, comments about Adam's calves at this point. Those are always welcome too. Um, but again... Rate, review, subscribe to us wherever else you are, wherever you're consuming this podcast. Subscriptions and obviously downloads are are the most important. If you are doing all those things or have done all of them already, please, word of mouth, it helps. Retweet our promos. Tell your friends, family members, acquaintances, random people on social media about us. They will thank you later. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Please follow our Instagram channel. Go to YouTube. Oh, woo, that's a mess up. Our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come right up, subscribe, like our videos. Most of our podcasts and definitely all of these ranking podcasts will be up there. Last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsor this week. As always, betonline.ag. You'll be hearing from them in just a moment. Adam, how are you doing? I'm going to put on my, my old man pants here for a minute and, and say that I'm spending every waking moment wishing, praying, fervently hoping that the goddamn fireworks are done finally. I don't know about you, but in, in our neighborhood, we've we've had fireworks going off nightly from like 9 p.m. until 2 a.m. for about two and a half weeks now. And it's uh it's gotten quite old as as the owner of two dogs with a an 18-month-old. We even had a uh, 
a robin's nest in our front yard and the the nest has been abandoned because of the fireworks which is really sad and uh, it's i'm ready for it to be done it has been the same story here and as someone with two dogs i try to understand the the stance of people want to let off fireworks i don't want to be that person but when it was 1 a.m on sunday night a work night and they're going off like no that's not okay whether you have an infant or puppies it, it just doesn't matter. That that was not cool. So I'm totally with you. But people have more time on their hands, it seems, if uh, you know they're still working from home or maybe they're not working at the moment, uh, which I obviously would hate to find out. But it, that does seem why there's an uptick in fireworks. People are bored is what I really feel like. And, and what could be more American than torturing all our veterans with PTSD? Are you ready to rank <laughs> the top <laughs> no, 10? No follow up on that one, huh? Are you ready to rank the top 10 Milwaukee Bucks uh, of the decade? I, I am. There, there are going to be significantly fewer fireworks in this one. Yeah, this was this was a rough one. Uh, before you get, get us to number 10, can you, as usual, take us through a brief description of, of how this shindig works? I can. Yeah, so as always, we've had uh, you, the listeners, the fans, contribute uh, via the polls that we've put out on the NBA Math Twitter account asking for your top 10 members of the Milwaukee Bucks during this decade, which dates back to 2010-2011. So we have three different components. We have the fans voting, we have my ballot, and we have Dan's ballot, combining those together to form a composite score, which is the top 10 that we're going over today. So in the Bucks composite rankings, we had Andrew Bogut, Jabari Parker, Monte Ellis, and Greg Monroe just barely miss out on the top 10. Spoiler alert, this was weird, especially at the bottom. It was hard to find people who were actually deserving of a top 10 spot. Um, but we did have Brandon Knight check in at number 10 solely because of Dan's contributions. Uh, Brandon Knight did check in at number 12 on the fan vote. He rose as high as fifth on two ballots. Um, I had him just barely outside my top 10. Dan had him up at number eight, which means the floor is yours to justify that one. Look, so in his time there, two seasons, spanning two seasons, he averaged 17.9 points, five assists per game, shot 36.1% from three, about 46% on twos. That That is the time that earned him the, the monster contract he ended up playing on that became an albatross. And I'm not going to factor that in because those two seasons with the Bucks were pretty good. He never led in above average offense, and that's probably the, the red flag here. But, you know, if you're going to put up numbers like that, uh, over a semi-consistent period of time in this exercise specifically where everything was so wide open uh, that season and let's say a half he spent in Milwaukee it's, it still ended up being over a hundred games um, that matters uh, there was you know the competition at the bottom just wasn't too fierce and again I recognize that the Bucks offense was just never elite under him but those were the best 124 games of his career I think you can can safely say and it wasn't too much of a mirage because he had uh, not so much during the time he played in Phoenix that year after he was traded, but his first full season in Phoenix, he was really good. And so this wasn't just him maybe capitalizing on, on a mirage. He clearly wasn't as good as these numbers show, but he dealt with injuries after he ended up with Phoenix and that definitely contributed to how far he fell. So I was actually surprised that I am the reason he is in the top 10. I thought he might be a consensus pick. I remember watching Brandon Knight break out on the Bucks after his his failure of a tenure with the Detroit Pistons and, and thinking that it seemed legit 
that this was the start. This was a, a 22-year-old kind of coming into his own as an offensive force who could score from all over the court, even if he didn't have the most consistent three-point shot, who could capably facilitate, even if passing wasn't the thing that he looked to do most often. But then I, I think it it also became clear that, you know, there, there are some guys who put up big stats on losing teams and they aren't necessarily just empty calories. I'm, I'm thinking about like Trey Young on the Atlanta Hawks, Devin Booker on the Phoenix Suns in previous seasons, guys where you watch them and you're, you're, you're still just filled with this obvious feeling that they're really good basketball players and not just a product of their circumstances. I'm not quite sure that Brandon Knight fit into that category. He played for a 15 win Bucks team during his first season and just had a perpetual green light and capitalized on it. But I just, looking back, I, I think that there was maybe a little bit too much optimism about his tenure. Now, that said, like, I do totally get putting him in the top 10. He was probably the toughest cut for me. But 14th in minutes played with the empty calories offense, like, it just wasn't quite enough for me to want to have him there. Fun fact, Brandon Knight still never been to the playoffs in his career. And I guess he might not be. I don't know that he's going to be end up on a team um long term anyway i will say i what i also liked about him is he was someone who could play off the ball as well in the backcourt that gets tough if you want to play him with another point guard because he's only six two but that optionality and you know how i love optionality that really that did it for me as well and so it was just look it it is just a chaos fest at the bottom of these buck at the bottom of the bucks rankings i think that contributes to the thinking too is optionality or portability the bigger Dan Favalli buzzword? Ooh. It's got to be portability, I feel like. I probably say that a lot more. Who knows? I though? feel like you say optionality more, but it's also a more common word. So like I'm, when you factor in that second part, I feel like portability might might rise to the top of the Favalli power rankings. Yeah, that's fair. The optionality is definitely commonly used. I do feel like I'm one of the few podcasters or writers that consistently uses portability i've yet to stumble across anyone else who uses it maybe one day maybe one day maybe, maybe one this day. will start a trend for the dozen or so people listening to this podcast yeah that between that and thereness we have things that should really catch on we have the words we have the best words thereness i feel like didn't really come up in the last in the miami heat rankings now that i'm thinking about it that was recorded it really didn't i think that was it, it was it was more about like those moments than the thereness, probably because there have been moments. <laughs> Speaking of thereness, though, number nine typifies thereness. John Henson 100% typifies thereness for the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, I was the only person who had him in the top 10 this time. He was uh, 13th in the fan vote, did not make the cut for Dan. I had him up at number seven, uh, fourth in minutes played during the decade for the Milwaukee Bucks. And even if he was never a star or even a starter for most of his time, he was just this, this consistent presence i guess is is the best way to put it like he was never going to blow you away on either side of the ball but a, a consistently solid interior defender who who didn't have much switchability just before that kind of became at a premium in the front court and and a guy on offense who was going to knock down mid-range jumpers was going to serve as a rim runner and didn't necessarily try to overextend himself and and there's value in accepting and thriving within your role yeah, I think what really held him back for me was it felt like they were forever waiting for him to turn into their center of the future. And it just, despite ending up with a, you know, fairly significant four-year deal from them, it just never, it just never came came to be that way. And so he's, 
he typifies thereness, but I feel like his tenure there was largely unimpressive. And maybe it would have been different if he ever was there, clear cut big of the future. But he just felt like this this stopgap where they had him, they kept him, but they were always searching for the the next best option after him, even while he was on the roster. I thought he was going to be so good coming out of North Carolina. He's just he's one of those guys where I, I watched him throughout his three years. Uh, with the Tar Heels and saw that consistent improvement, saw him starting to expand his range, saw him improving his free throw percentage and having a better feel for the game. And I was like, this dude's going to be a star. 12th pick, our 14th overall pick in 2012. And just, I, I, don't, I don't know that he fizzled, but he, he really just stagnated. There definitely wasn't enough optionality, there you go, from him on the offensive end. I mean, I mean, you talked a little bit about his defensive portability. There you go. Um, <laughs> But on offense, like I, it's not that you needed him to have a jumper, that he needed to space the floor really, or that he needed to work. Like He needed to at least be a little bit better of a passer. It needed to be something that kind of separated him from the thick of rim-running bigs on that end of the floor. And I, I don't think there, there ever really was. Maybe some Bucks fans will disagree, and that's, that's totally fine. You can yell at me on Twitter or, or something. So I think that definitely, you know, not so much in this discussion specifically, but that, that's a talking point for his time in Milwaukee. It is um, a very different player than the guy who checks in at number eight, even though they filled like kind of similar roles. Uh, number eight is Larry Sanders, who was the first person who unanimously appeared on all three components. He was number eight for the fans. He was number nine for me and he was number 10 for you. Um, Sanders, what a weird and brief career it was. It's, it kind of felt like, you know, that shooting star that, you know, just it catches everyone's attention and then and just disappears and you pretty quickly forget about it. Um, when, when he was breaking into a bigger role with the Bucks in 2012-13, he was just the embodiment of defensive excitement, I think. Just a guy with interminable length who played with so much energy and so much passion and so much hustle and just seemed to really just feed off of blocking shots and consuming those interior attempts. I, I Every time I hear his name, I picture it written in all caps with an exclamation point at the end. Shout out to Zach Lowe there um, for, for doing that in all of his columns. And it just, it didn't last. But I, I think that the, the level that he reached in terms of excitement and invigoration to a fan base that was struggling to, uh, to find reasons to continue to support a team that was largely floundering was really important. Yeah, for sure. And look, for a while, it just looked like he was going to be one of the elite rim-running floor protectors in in the league. And the, the rash of injuries he suffered was just something – they weren't always related. He had thumb issues. He had back issues. He had knee issues. And those – after he plays in 71 games in the 2013 – season like he's just really never available for Milwaukee in the two seasons after that and then as we know uh he left the NBA tried to attempt to come back with the Cavs that didn't really pan out and so as you said at the top it was this really weird career trajectory and I actually forgot how many seasons he logged at least a few games for the Bucks within this decade I mean we're talking about five different ones and so he he has the thereness factor a little bit even though the game total isn't up there since he only played in 200 and and 33 games. And so he felt like the guy who was actually tabbed to be that center for long-term for Milwaukee. And I thought he really was going to be that solution and uh, injuries predominantly made it so that it, it never really went that way. I would be curious if you dropped 
fully healthy, let's say 2012, 2013 Larry Sanders in the NBA today. I just kind of wonder what he looks like. I think he's still fine. You needed him to probably do more as a passer as well. And would he be strong enough to go up against some of these other bigs? But he had some really good mobility on the defensive end. And then he was just this brick wall uh, around the the basket. And and so that coupled with he was seemed fairly reliable at his peak anyway as a finisher while he was run, uh, running towards the basket. So just a, a fascinating player to, to talk about. And I just wonder if the injuries never hit what we, what we're taught, what we're saying about him right now. It doesn't even matter if he was on the bucks or not. Is he higher up these rankings? Does it still kind of fall the same way? I don't know. I, I do think it's important to note that it was more than injuries too. I mean, he, he got suspended after multiple tests um, for marijuana usage, which is bullshit, but that's another topic for another time. And then more, more seriously, he also um, ended up checking into a program um, at a hospital to be treated for anxiety, depression, and mood disorders. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate that that happens to everybody. Anybody, um, I, I think he's done a really good job talking about that and and helping to destigmatize it. Um, and made the right decision for his personal well being to not pursue a return to basketball until he got his mental health in better shape. Um, his career could have been very different without that, but I, I think it's less important than him getting his life on the right track too. That is unequivocally correct. And he, I think this is actually, it's somewhat topical because he said that he wants to come back to the NBA semi-recently. It was like a week ago. He told mm-hmm. TMZ that he would like to come back to the NBA. So I'm just, if you're right, I think the injuries played, I guess a huge part of what was happening on the court, but there was obviously things off the court and you, he, I'm glad he, took care of himself first and foremost. And then, yeah, there's the marijuana thing, which is just absolutely ludicrous. So, uh, but I'm just curious if we're not, you know, if the injuries never hit, is there anything that's different about this? You know, naturally the anxiety probably wouldn't go away, but it does, he become sort of this on court, like billboard uh, for someone who destigmatizes it a lot in the way that Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan did. He's, he was never going to reach those pinnacles, but it is, it is to me at least somewhat interesting to consider. Unfortunately, I, I just don't think that he would have. We saw how quickly just dominant defensive presences like Roy Hibbert got marginalized right. in the changing NBA. And I, I think it would be really tough for a guy with such a limited skill set to really thrive in anything more than a very limited minutes role. And I think that's bad. Like, I, I'm largely in favor of the stylistic changes that the NBA has undergone over the last decade or so. The the propagation of three-point heavy offenses, which even though they result in like fairly homogenous shot selection, those shots are generated in such different ways that there is still nuance to each offense. And it is still enjoyable to watch different styles, even if they're producing fairly similar results. But that trend has effectively eliminated guys like Larry Sanders, guys like Chris Anderson, um, those those high-flying shot-blocking specialists. And I think the NBA was better with those players in it. And it's just, it's it's a shame to me that the, it's harder to, to find a home with that role now. Yeah, yeah that, that totally makes sense. And it's been such a stark shift with it um, that it's, it hasn't been, it hasn't been as gradual as the three-point a revolution. And so that's, I think, why it seems like it's had such an impact on the way centers are viewed in general, because it's not like this, you know, the the Serge Ibaka-like archetype, where you wanted this floor spacing, rim protector, like that was kind of like to get there where he was still an anomaly a few years ago. And now that's almost just like the standard. It just felt like there wasn't this uh, 
natural transition towards it. And I don't know whether that's good or bad. I tend to think that the game has never been better than it has right now, but I, I totally get your point where it's kind of a shame where you see, you know, good players devalued or sort of schemed out of the league in certain cases. Look at Clint Capella. He was treated as the inferior player to Robert Covington in, in that trade, that four team trade that involved the Rockets. They gave him a first round pick in that deal. So and that's not a shot at Robert Covington, who's fantastic, but it's, you know, two years ago, is that what you're talking about? Clint Capella and a first round mm-hmm. pick for Robert Covington? I don't, I don't think so. No, definitely not. And I don't think those are mutually exclusive points either. Like we can bemoan the, 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 the inability for players in every role to have a place in the league while also enjoying those stylistic shifts. Sports are coming back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. And there's no better place to start than our exclusive partner, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight, or check out odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your team to come back? Bet Online has futures odds, including win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out daily simulations of Madden and NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Now, there are some players who have been able to make those transitions more seamless, more seamless, more seamlessly, I'm struggling with that word, and more with more impact and and more seamlessly than this transition that you're making. Yes, for sure. (laughs) It was a a good segue that was very poorly executed. Um, But yeah, so we're, we're moving on to Brooke Lopez at number seven, or at least I'm attempting to, Um, he checked in at number five uh, for the fans. He was number eight for me. He was number seven for you, but he does kind of embody the transition that centers have been asked to make, even if not all of them are capable of making the leap quite like he has. I mean, he went the first almost 10 years of his career without really serving as any sort of three-point shooter. And then all of a sudden with the Brooklyn Nets at the very end of his tenure and then with the Lakers and especially with the Bucks, he's turned into this this floor spacing five. But more than that, he went from maybe a defensive liability because of his lack of mobility uh, and, and inability to contribute on the glass early in his career to a guy who I, I think is a very legitimate choice for defensive player of the year this season. Right. And what's interesting too, is that part of what's made him special is to have made this transition and to not even be the, among the best three point shooters at his position. This, this season specifically, he struggled uh, among 126 players who have attempted at least 100 triples with a defender six or more feet away, so wide open threes. His 29.2% clip ranks 124th, so there are only two players shooting a lower clip on those shots. But because he's able to do other things on offense, his passing has improved ever since um, he started under Kenny Atkinson in in Brooklyn. Um, That regime helped him make quicker decisions. He could still really... Uh, torch people in the post in Milwaukee we've seen him really pump into drives more and take people off the dribble he's not super fast but he's just so big and nimble that it works that all helps and then he is just incredibly important on the defensive end like you said he probably belongs in the discussion I don't know for defensive player of the year but certainly for an all defense team which is almost the same thing because there's only two center spots up for grabs in those so um, I, I admire that and it's funny because he was viewed as this liability on defense early on in his career. And I don't know if people just didn't watch him enough at that time. Uh, Maybe it was to 
to do had to do with all those foot injuries that he suffered because he he very clearly wasn't this good defensively for a lot of his time with the Nets and that's just not even close that's just a fact but he's such a strong rim protector now and he's for someone his size I wouldn't say he's matchup proof but he's he's pretty damn close and it's not because he's quick but he just knows how to use space his length and he just gets in these like really low stances that makes you look like he's trying to perfect his squat form or something so uh, and it all just works out he is an incredibly useful player and it's it's mind melting or that he was in a position where he was playing for such for the biannual exception i think it was last year before he got this big contract it was you go from the lakers uh from the nets to the lakers and you kind of have that his stock changed so quickly which is sort of a harbinger of what we were just talking about where the center position it's it's so susceptible to these reflexive opinions where we can see values just we see them mostly plummet, but they're certainly more turbulent than they've been in, in years past. And his ability to, to kind of withstand that is, is, is admirable. I don't think that Brooke Lopez is the best defender on the Milwaukee Bucks. I, 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 I think that, that title has to, to the, belong to Giannis. Right. Uh, I, I think you can make a convincing case that he's the most important defender on Milwaukee. Giannis does more. He's able to flit around between every possible matchup on the court and positively impact the proceedings regardless of who he's defending. I'm not sure that that degree of switchability of playing free safety essentially within the half-court set is possible without Brooke Lopez serving as that backline defender. I think I agree with you, but there's also a conversation to be had about whether because Brooke Lopez is so good, does he hold the Bucks back a little bit from exploring more Giannis at the five combinations, which may in fact be the best version of themselves at some point. They've gone to it more this year than they ever have before, but it's still, I think it's sub 500 possessions for the season. And I do think those lineups end up being important in the playoffs, but because Lopez is so good, are you less inclined to go towards that? Right. Nothing to right. do with his individual value, I guess. Just a thought exercise from me. But who do we have at number six? And I'll go ahead. At Sorry. number six, well, I, I was going to say, I, I think that we also just have to, to give Lopez a shout out for not just the stylistic evolution, but the evolution mentally with the role that he's taken on. I mean, he went from being a consistent 20-point-per-night threat with the Nets, who was an all-offense everything. We're going to just eat up those touches in the post and from the elbows to a guy who's only averaging 11 points per game and might be having the best season of his career. And it's exceedingly rare to have a player, regardless of the position at which they operate, to take on that kind of transition while still in their prime. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. But anyway, number six, we have Malcolm Brogdon, who was number seven for the fans. I would have expected him to be higher. Um, number six for me, and you had him all the way up at number four. Yeah, he was, that was, things got a little bit murky for me after I went with my top three. And I didn't know, do you put him above Brandon Jennings? Do you put him above Ursan Ilyasova? I, I really didn't know, but he was part of some of the best Bucks teams we've um, seen in recent memory. And there was just a plug and playness to his impact where it was, he could be a game manager when you gave him the ball. Um, but he gave you this, a ton of uh, positional range on the defensive end was a knockdown shooter for the looks that he was taking while he was in Milwaukee. And he could also do, you know, get by some guys um, his, his drives and he finished in transition, I think more often than people realize. And so just this really rock solid presence through his entire time in Milwaukee. And hey, we're talking about a co-rookie of the year here. So, and maybe I'm getting a little whimsical for him because 
of his draft status, you know, to see how important he became to some of the best versions of the Bucks, knowing he went 36 overall. Uh, but maybe that's skewing uh, sort of my my vision there too. But it's, I think the best way to frame it is I viewed him, even though the Bucks have been spectacular, I viewed him as a pretty big loss when he went to, to Indiana in free agency. And so that also kind of upped him in my rankings by default as well. His career arc has already been so fascinating. If you look back at the rookie of the year voting, from uh, the 2016-17 season that he wanted in. Um, the top five, we had a tie between Willie Hernan Gomez and Jamal Murray, and then Buddy Heald, um, who shot below uh, only 42.6% from the field that season, then Joel Embiid, who played 31 games, then Dario Saric, and then Brogdon was the winner that season. And it's like, there, there was so much negative reaction to him winning Rookie of the Year just because as good as he was and as valuable as he was and as fun as he was to watch it also it just it felt like a very much a down year for rookie of the year voting and it's almost like he took that personally and then it's just like i'm going to get better in every single area now um and developed into one of the most efficient smart shooters in the league just a guy that's never going to to force the game but manages to have it come to him in so many different ways the plug and playness as you mentioned at the top um an ability to to handle the ball to play off the ball to work as a cutter to work as a spot-up shooter just there is no role that brogdon isn't going to thrive in and that's it was important to the bucks it is important to the pacers and he's just continued to not just validate um, that rookie of the year, but but improve on it. I'm with you in lockstep with you on there too. And like you said, the trajectory is is unique and interesting just because he you felt like his rookie of the year. I was saying that more so in jest. It was sort of this underwhelming co-victory that season. And yet when you look at what he developed into by his third year in Milwaukee, he was a fringe all-star and he was just scoring more than you thought all of it came within the flow of the offense basically which is not something you normally say of a guard so just I probably maybe I'm clearly higher on him than most maybe it's too high considering there are players who spent a lot longer in Milwaukee than he did but I stand by my number four drop for him it's a valid spot and as you said this was a murky section of the rankings it, it was it was difficult to differentiate between all of these players that we're about to talk about, um, including number five, which is Ersan Ilyasova, uh, who was number six for the fans. I had him up at number four. Uh, you also had him at number six, like the fans. Another guy who didn't provide big, glamorous scoring numbers. His time with the Bucks was interrupted by a two-season stint in Spain, but he still checks the Vernus box better than most. He's third in minutes played for the decade, one of uh, only three players who hit five figures in minutes. Um, and he was just this consistent effort guy. I, I feel like when you talk about Ilyasova, you have to talk about the charge taking because he might be one of the best ever in that facet of the game. It's a limited facet, but it is a facet nonetheless. And I'm going to back that up actually, because in, uh, in February, 2019, I did a big Twitter thread about Ilyasova's charge taking and what a ridiculous outlier it was. Um, at that point, he had 95 charges over the past three seasons, over, over the past three seasons. Kyle Lowry was second with 69, then Kemba Walker with 68. And if uh, if you look at Z scores for uh, the, the charges that he took per game and compare it to scoring, that would be the equivalent of someone averaging 44.9 points per game um, in terms of Z scores, which I just I thought was fascinating and helps like put into perspective just how far ahead of the pack he was in that area. 
That is not random, but fun. That is, that is wild. That is absolutely wild. So uh, he's, he's an interesting player and he's, he has two different stints with the Milwaukee Bucks during this decade now as well. And so there's the floor spacing 37.7% from three during his time with Milwaukee. Uh, As you said, there's, there's the charge taking. He's someone that I think at least in previous years, could have been a little bit or was a little bit better at creating his own shot. Not something that you're necessarily going to ask him to do a ton anymore. He can give you a mismatch at center two, uh, maybe without completely torching your defense. I know it works with this year's Milwaukee Bucks team, but it's, it's really, this team is such a special team that I almost feel like it's unfair to, to identify that as a standard, but they're in the 90th percentile of defensive efficiency when he plays at the five. And so just a, a very useful sort of glue guy. And I think we even saw, you know, he was a big part of the reason um, Philly midseason a few years ago, like sort of had just that sort of just built up its stock where it didn't feel suddenly, but was just a big part of them becoming such a staple in the postseason. So uh, Ilyasova, again, just, just that rock solid glue guy. And I'm stumbling through this because I'm dealing with an influx of emails and text messages because Patrick Mahomes just signed a a 10 year extension with the, or 10 year deal with the chiefs, which is, that's a very long deal, but that caught my attention while I was going through this. So, so I apologize to everyone, but Ilya Sova, I think is kind of like right where he belongs. And there's definitely a fairness factor there for him as well, too. Uh, he is. And I was also surprised to kind of see that he was third in win shares for this team, which I think has a lot to do with, with the fairness factor for him as well. Do you think it's fair to say that Ilya Sova is one of the most underrated three and D guys ever? It depends on how much you value his defense, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, he never had the the flexibility on defense. He was never much of a rim protector, but there's value in in the scrappers and uh, and the guys who are going to take charges so well and who are going to sacrifice their body and and dive for the loose balls and and be rough and tumble from start to finish whenever he's on the court. Um, I, I don't think he was like a lockdown defender or anything, but. I feel like the three and D definition kind of gets warped a lot and applies to people who aren't necessarily good defenders, but shoot a lot of threes or vice versa. Like they're great defenders, but they're awful shooters. And we just kind of want to pigeonhole them into that, but we don't necessarily extend the definition to include guys who are just average at both. Mm -hmm. And he's been average at both for a long, long time. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a fair way to look at it. I don't, Saying he's one of the most underrated three and D players of all time, though, feels like it might take it a touch too far. But perhaps I'm not valuing his defensive utility nearly enough. To not be a consistent net negative or detriment is a pretty big deal when we're talking about floor spacing bigs. It is, but you know who was an obvious negative on the defensive end? Who's that? It's our number four player, Brandon Jennings. He was a uh, Bucks and he six. Was number, <laughs> he was number three for the fans. He was number five for both of us. And he was number one to Brandon Jennings. Um, he he entered the league shooting, and he exited the league shooting, and he did a whole lot of shooting in between. Uh, did not consistently make the Bucks a better team. Quite the opposite, in fact. But he put up a whole lot of big numbers. Look, and there's something to just be said that on any given night he could just drop all the points in the history of. Of the NBA. a 55 spot as right. a rookie, which granted is outside our time frame, but deserves to be talked about nonetheless. And look, his numbers with through the three seasons he spent with the Bucks: 17.6 points, 5.7 assists, 1.6 steals. Never a good defender, but opportunistic there with his gambles. 
and he shot almost 35% from three. Not not the worst, not the worst splits in the world. Only shooting 43.3% on twos on this perpetual heat check. Even when he wasn't hot, there was definitely at points a destructiveness to his game. It felt like, but he was look. If you can score that much in the NBA and even on what do you want to say suboptimal efficiency, like there's That's being very generous, but yes, there's there's a there was a place for that. And imagine him if he hadn't been basically the face of the team for so long, or if he had been just a guy who came off the bench as a sixth man. That seems like the role that he was never really at the height of his powers. That seems like the role for which he was best suited. And obviously he was just never um, able to take on that role. You know, I, I have not done nearly enough research to validate this statement but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Brandon Jennings might be the worst player ever who has scored 30 or more points in seven different seasons. I mean, can you run that by me one more time? He's so he scored at least 30 points. Like his, his season high exceeded 30 in seven different seasons. I mean, it's possible. That's also like kind of impressive. (laughs) It 100% is, but it's like, I don't know how many people have done that, first of all. I don't think there's really an easy way to search for that on Basketball Reference or anywhere else, um, but I can't imagine that that many guys have done it, especially especially in a career that only lasted nine seasons. He he probably is still in the NBA if he never suffers that Achilles injury, right? Are we in agreement right. about that? Sure. So, uh, but he was also kind of fun. I'm just because you didn't really know what was going to happen whenever he had the ball, and he was always like kind of like skipping up the court. It felt like, like as if he was on mm-hmm. the playground, and so I respect that level of bravado. He was fun to watch. Yeah, he was fun to watch. This is a pro Brandon Jennings podcast. I want to make that very clear. And if Adam doesn't agree, he he can show he's free to see himself out. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to insult him. Like as you said, like the the ability to score 30 plus points in seven different seasons is remarkable in and of itself. I'm just I'm, I'm saying that it's probably an exclusive group. I I don't currently have a way of of objectively determining how exclusive a group it is, but I would imagine he's on the back end of that. It's like when we say like, okay, there are like twelve players averaging twenty five plus points, and he has the lowest true shooting percentage of those twelve. Like, kudos to you for being in the club, but we're also going to pick on the negative here. Yeah, no, totally. I was just just messing around. But Brandon Jennings, fun to watch, not the most effective player. That might be then probably not so fun to watch if you were emotionally invested in the Bucks at all at points, but still. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm I'm going to I'm going to try to do the research and and we can we can check back in on a future episode and see if Brandon Jennings truly is the worst player to score 30 or more points in 7 seasons. <laughs> that that might need to be a podcast series unto itself. We can make that happen. Who do we have at number three? At number three, we have a far more valuable player. <laughs> I think we uh, we kind of entered more of a more of consensus territory in the top three, at least for you and I, where we were in lockstep. Although the fans did have Brandon Jennings above Eric Bledsoe, who checks in at number three. Um, he was number four for the fans. He was number three for both of us. He felt like a lock for that third spot to me, where. Even if he hasn't spent that much time with the Bucks, only sixth minutes played, one slot below Brandon Jennings, uh, he's been so gr- he's been so good and so valuable on both ends until the playoffs roll around. 
Look, he's an all NBA defender, and the past two postseasons have not been pretty uh, by by any stretch. But he's shooting; he has an effective field goal percentage above sixty three in isolation this year, which is the best mark in the league among any player who has attempted more than fifty shots in isolation. And so maybe he's more playoff proof now, which kind of makes his top three case airtight. But when you look at what he can do defensively, um, even just his burst to the basket. It's a big deal. And so the the more inexcusable playoff folly from him is getting outplayed by Terry Rozier in 2018. Uh, last year, I thought he was fine defensively. There's just there's an element of solvability to the Bucks, And I don't want to pin it on Giannis, but just in general, when you look at how... Bledsoe, there is or there was? There, I'm going to say there was because I don't think there is anymore. But it's I, okay, I, think I agree. It, it's open for discussion to me also. So I don't want to pin it entirely on him. Um, a lot of it, I feel like, has to do with the way Giannis Antetokounmpo plays. And now that he's more comfortable taking fadeaways and pull-up jumpers, uh, Giannis has doubled his pull-up jumper attempt uh, from three this year compared to last year. And I think that helps out Brandon Jennings. It's not just the efficiency. It's, uh, wow, Eric Bledsoe. It could help out Brandon Jennings too, but whatever. Uh, so that helps out Bledsoe to me. I think he ends up being better in the playoffs this year. And yeah, even I if he doesn't, so. I don't think his top three spot is in jeopardy just relative to the competition. But it also feels like he just he can't move into the top two, no matter what he does in the playoffs this year. No, no, Chris Middleton slander here. I almost put Middleton one. I didn't, but you did. You definitely did. Trying to make a point. Speaking of Chris Middleton, though, it's funny that the top three is going to be the quickest to go through because we're talking about known commodities that had uh, that have like zero arguments against their position. Like if you don't have Giannis at one, spoilers, or Middleton at two, I don't really know what you're doing, but but carry on. Can I can I tease an article that you're doing for for Bleacher Report? Is that allowed? Uh, sure. Yeah. So you, you know you were t- you were talking to me about this this article you're working on about the the biggest flaws in the resume of the top players in the league, and Middleton's included as as he should be. I mean, the guy is averaging 21.1 points and is literally two made shots away from a 50 40 90 season. What the hell is his flaw? Like, what has he done that's worthy of criticism at any point? during his NBA career. He's developed into this fantastic scorer who can operate off the ball, who can create from scratch, who who thrives from these outdated mid-range long two zones and makes them work for himself while not sacrificing three-point volume and efficiency. A guy who consistently takes on tough defensive assignments and holds his own there. A guy who overcame injuries in college and being the 39th overall pick in 2012 and being given up on far too soon by the Detroit Pistons to become an absolute star with the Bucks, a very legitimate second fiddle on a championship caliber team. Like, what do you criticize? I think it's that he just doesn't fit within the neat context of a traditional number two. And I do think now more so than ever, that's really out the window. When you've seen some of his playoff performances, look, last year he kind of cratered when the rest of the Bucks' offense cratered. But over the past two seasons, the offense um, has been good when he plays without Giannis Antetokounmpo, and that's a big deal. And he, he seems to check every box. I think this year, it's definitely circumstantial because, you know, Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, those are injured guys, Kyrie Irving, Carl Anthony Towns, Joel Embiid, Paul George, none of those players really appear in enough games or any games at all. But all of a sudden, Chris Middleton might have been a top 10 player in the NBA this season. I'm talking about just this season. But Not even sure it's a might have been. He's certainly, he's going to make an All-NBA team. He should be third team All-NBA. I think that ends up being him and, and Jason Tatum. So there's, he just doesn't have a ton of hole in his games. I do think it's fair to question whether he has the 
the it factor of if you want to call him an actual top 10 player or a top 15 player, because his game, I think the biggest criticism might be it kind of stalls out before he gets to the rim. And I think that's where a lot of the, oh, he's not a traditional number two stuff come from comes from is you exacerbate one of the one of the few flaws in his game. And there's a chance that he is, if not a probability that he is a cut above what you would say is a normal star, but he's he's an all-star at this point. I don't know if people are just viewing him disfavorably because of the contract that he's on. Uh, still, Chris Middleton is one of my favorite players in, in the NBA, and I think he's one of the most effective ones, and he's the type of guy where I feel like he straddles that line between I will go out and get you buckets out of nothing, but I will also fit within any offensive model you tell me to. And even when he was kind of, there was a push and pull between him and Coach Bud with his shot selection where I want you to take more threes, um, but then he relents, and this season he's taking more uh, mid-range jumpers. He was still just, he had that universality to his game. And so I don't think, he definitely isn't going to be challenged for number two in this discussion, but the conversation we're having right now is a larger one, and it's one that, assuming the Bucks stay together, depending on what happens in the postseason this year, it continues. And I, I do think, though, that we're past the point where we can just say that he's not a viable number two on a championship team, because I, I absolutely think that he is. You know, I, I know you're hesitant to toot your own horn, but you were high on Chris Middleton a lot longer than most. And I feel like you were one of the, the first people that, that saw something special in him. You know what it was is that I knew because the Detroit Pistons didn't give him a long enough look that he would end up being good. That's that's totally fair. Talk about Spencer Dinwiddie, Brad. That must have been what it was. And look, when you throw out thousands of terrible takes, you're bound to get one or two, right? Also fair. So are you, are you saying that, you know, Andre Drummond is going to develop into like a four-time MVP now? It's possible. <laughs> That's very mean to Detroit. Still so speaking of four-time trade. MVPs, though. Four-time that's a, that's, MVPs, that's yes. My, that's my segue in, into a future four-time MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who was the very obvious number one for this franchise. He was unanimously number one in the composite rankings. He appeared on, in the number one spot on all but two fan ballots, I'm going to assume both of those were troll ballots because one had J.J. Redick in first place and Giannis in second. The other I'm going to read in full because it's fantastic. It has Brandon Jennings in the number one spot, followed by Larry Sanders, Ersan Ilyasova, Andrew Bogut, Michael Redd, Monte Ellis, Nate Walters, John Henson, Earl Boykins, and Giannis in the 10th spot. I do appreciate that Giannis has done so much for this franchise that even the troll ballot can't leave him <laughs> off entirely. That's a bigger compliment than a consensus number one finish. I agree. I agree. I, one thing, you know, he's he's so obviously the number one that I feel like we can talk about the weird things like that. I was caught a little by surprise that he's actually number one in minutes played for the decade for this franchise. Just given that he entered the NBA in 2013 as an unproven commodity, a guy who only played 24.6 minutes per game as a rookie and took a couple of years to develop into a full-fledged star. Um, it just... I, I didn't didn't know who I expected to be number one, I don't think, but I, I just I didn't feel like it was gonna be Giannis until I, I ran that search. It's kind of like the perception of I thought Brandon Jennings played more minutes than he did for the Bucks this decade, and you just undervalue what what Giannis played. Uh because it look my memory of him is barely playing in his his first season i didn't realize though that he still actually averaged almost 25 minutes a game right i feel like season. the only thing i remember from that rookie season is him just going toe-to-toe with carmelo anthony just like that <laughs> one game against the knicks in madison square garden where he was like i want the challenge i'm gonna lock up mellow yeah I mean, <laughs> that's like 
his rookie season is such a blur, but I definitely, when I went back and looked at his stats page, I didn't see that he, I didn't think he played in 77 games. I definitely didn't think he averaged almost 25 minutes per game in, in those contests. He also just still felt like a novelty then. This is, because he's so clearly the number one, over under on the number of MVPs Giannis Antetokounmpo wins. He he has to. Let's get that. He has to. Let's set it at 4.5. I'm going to go over. That's, it's just, I think I think if you want to play the hot take horn here, feel free. But I think that Giannis is going to go down as one of the five best basketball players ever. Oh wow, that is the hot take horn. We need to sound that. If you have one, sound it right now. Five best basketball players ever. All right, look, he needs to. There's still that stain of the 2019 Eastern Conference Finals, and I'm not saying he's still the best player in the league to me, but he has to. There's going to have to be like more of an element of winning for him to to get there. Like there has to be like he can't he has to be like the the right kind of matchup proof. Like we can't be talking about how there's always a round or a series of games where oh the Celtics I think he's already getting there though. I mean he like, might the, be. the issue just... the issue last year was that you could wall off on defense and force him to play from the outside. If you could prevent him from getting to the rim and finishing around the basket, you to some extent at least solved him. But he spent this entire series or this entire season in the workshop working on the counters to that. And how many times have we seen him hit that little turnaround mini jumper? That shot alone changes everything. Right. It opens a ton of things up. So I I think he gets there. It's just they're going to top five all time. That's just such a. I think he's fully capable of getting there. For some reason, I just can't envision it because maybe we're too early into his peak right now. But it's tough for See, me. I don't think we're at his peak. That's the thing. I, well, I, I, mean, just, I, I don't think we're there yet. That would be, obviously, if you're going to think he's top five all time. So 4.5 MVPs, though, it's tough for me to go over just because LeBron only has four. And maybe Giannis, will his timing will just be more convenient of his peak where there's not really a ton of other narratives that play as heavily as what he's doing. But as we, as we've seen in years past, voter fatigue is real. So I would be inclined to go towards the under just based off that fact. Do I think he'll be worthy of five MVPs or more? Uh, absolutely. How about, can I qualify my choice of the over and say that I think he's going to get five if he stays in Milwaukee and I think it'll be under if he doesn't similar to how when LeBron left for the Miami heat in 2010, he should have been the MVP in 2010, 11, but no one wanted to vote for him because he'd become the villain in the league. Right. And if, if Giannis goes to Miami or to Toronto or somehow is traded to golden state or something, then that something similar is going to happen. Um, but if he stays in Milwaukee, I, I feel like he's one of those universally beloved players. Right. And even if he, even if it's not the villain thing, if he does leave, and this is not us picking on the Giannis situation, it's just true of when superstars leave in general, it's probably because he's playing with another superstar too. And they, in, in turn, usually dilute each other's candidacy. Mm-hmm. But no one's going to vote for Chris Middleton for MVP. So he's safe there. Yeah. That's also, that's totally also fair. There'll be people that won't vote for him for all NBA this year, even though, as I kind of mentioned with some of the players who have been injured and not played in enough games, there'll still be pushback for including him in all NBA third team, I feel like. Right. So, okay. So I'm going to, I want to follow up on the, on the all time ranking thing. Cause when I say that he's going to be top five all time, that means that he's in that same category as Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Trey Young, and then Giannis. So where are you going to have him? All time was not prepared to answer this question. 
I didn't give you a trivia question this episode, so I feel like it's fair. I'll say top 15 pretty comfortably. If he if he continues, you know, barring anything catastrophic, I, I think top 15 I'd say comfortable with. Do I think he has the chance to be top five all time? I absolutely do. If he's, look, he might be someone, I'm probably talking myself into just your take, he might be someone who just wins Defensive Player of the Year and MVP multiple times in the same season. So forget about it even happening once. I guess voter fatigue could kick in there as well. So it, it all needs to be considered. I it wouldn't. It, I don't think it's absurd to say that he could be a top five player of all time. There's just still so much left of his career. I don't remember talking right. about any player in those terms this early, except for maybe LeBron. I mean, so it, his numbers this year, right? Like 29.6 points, 13.7 rebounds, 5.8 assists, a steal and a block per game, while only playing 30.9 minutes per game because the Bucks are so far and away the most dominant team in the league that it's similar to Stephen Curry in his peak seasons where he just didn't need to play the second half of the fourth quarter. He was able to, to rest for those maintenance purposes. Uh, if he stagnated from here on out throughout his athletic prime, if he played at this level for the next four or five seasons, we're already talking about a guy who's a candidate to be one of the 10 best ever. And he's going to get so much better as he continues to, to develop. I mean, this is a guy who didn't pick up a basketball until later in his childhood than we typically see from guys who are playing in the NBA. It's He's shooting 30.6% from three-point range on 4.8 attempts per game, and that's been market improvement, and yet it still feels like he can do so much more. It's just, I, I don't know how often you get a guy who is playing at this level while only scratching at the surface. I, I guess I'm just questioning how much room he has to grow when he's already 25, and there's really only one part left of his game to improve, and that would be his jumper. And if he's already comfortable taking jumpers off the dribble, if you start hitting those at league average clips, we're probably talking about it like in its over player. What what is the conversation then? So I, I see the tug of war there, where I'm like, well, how much better is he going to get at this point? But it's really he's kind of already doing the thing you want him to get better at. It's possible he gets more efficient, and if he does, then it's just over. I was not prepared to have this discussion on today's pod, but I totally understand where you're coming from. <laughs> I, I think it's always important with these discussions to acknowledge, too, that so much has to go right for those predictions to be validated. Like He has to not only stay healthy, but the team has to surround him with the right pieces. Seasons can't be canceled because of a pandemic, um, right. <laughs> which is a very real consideration right now. Um, and beyond that, he has to stay motivated and, and continue to have that drive throughout his career that is difficult to maintain at a level like someone like LeBron James 17 years in has still displayed. It's it's similar to like when we watched Zion Williamson for these 19 games that have taken place so far in his rookie season, or even when we watched him coming into the league, it didn't feel like that scorching a take to say like, hey, here's a guy who feels like he could be in that greatest of all time conversation. A whole hell of a lot has to go right for that to actually happen. But just the ability to reasonably say that that possibility exists is so rare in and of itself. And I think it's telling for Giannis that that, that feels so valid already. All of that's fair. And I think if, if he keeps up what he's doing, I think he's guaranteed entry into the top 10 of all time. And so by extension, that doesn't make your top five stand seem 
that absurd. I just, you know what it is? If we haven't started having this discussion about Giannis yet collectively in I the know, aggregate or anything. And so that's probably why it's so tough to wrap the head around. But I don't think what you're saying is it's definitely worth the hot take horn, but it's, it's actually not, you know, stupid. <laughs> Unlike some I, of your I other takes, which, that, are just, I guess. which are just, <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't know what the word, it's not a reach. So it's not as much of a reach as it seems right now is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, acknowledging that so much has to happen right for it to become a possibility. Do you but want anyway, to take, do you want to take one, us through some honorable mentions? For the bucket, for the bucks. Yeah, he, that's a, uh, it's clearly honest. Do you want to take us through some of the, the best honorable mentions? I would love to. So outside the top 10 on the fan ballot. Uh, we had Jabari Parker at number 11, Brandon Knight at number 12, John Henson at number 13, Michael Redd, one of my all-time favorite players, at 14, Greg Monroe at 15, George Hill at 16, J.J. Redick at 17, a three-way tie between Mike Dunleavy, Corey Maggetti, and Tobias Harris at 18, Dante DiVincenzo at 21, Zaza Pachulia at 22, Nate Walters and O.J. Mayo, an unlikely pairing, are tied at 23rd. Tony Snell, Jared Dudley, Luke Mbamute, and Earl Boykins are tied for 25th, and then a four-way tie for 29th between Pat Connaughton, Thon Maker, Harrison Ilyasova, and the one and only Michael Carter-Williams. Ooh, Michael Carter-Williams made an honorable mention. Congratulations to him. Anybody? Another any... another rookie of the year who uh, might have been a little questionable. Both played for the Bucks, though, too. They were, yeah. 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 So, There's a thing there. Yeah. Um, that'll do it for us. This was, this was an interesting one. It was a tough one to parse through. And then Adam threw a curveball that we did not discuss before recording this podcast. So we hope that you enjoyed the, uh, the abnormal amount of off the cuffness here. We will be on to the Minnesota Timberwolves next time we record one of these podcasts. Please again, remember to rate review and subscribe to us wherever you're consuming these episodes until next time we leave you with a shout out to Milwaukee Bucks legend, John Sammons. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Goal. Messi takes everybody up. Messi has got it! From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. 2-0 and he's... What a World Cup for Megan Rapinoe! From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapinoe's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair... Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire.